Fiona Maddox is chief music critic for The Observer in Britain. She was founding editor of BBC Music Magazine, and she was educated at the Royal College of Music and at Cambridge. Maddox has written well-received studies of Hildegard von Bingen and the music of Harrison Birtwistle, as well as a book she's titled Music for Life, 100 Works to Carry You Through a book, as we come to see, that asks, how does music reflect the key moments in our lives? How do we choose the works that inspire, delight, comfort, or console us? Maddox writes, in compiling a list of this kind, I had one rule, the music comes first. I asked, why do I want to listen to a particular work at any given moment? What is the imperative? Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata was the name of the first piece I wrote down. Soon I had a couple of hundred absolute dead certainties and a mild sense of panic. The categories came later, a broad and flexible way of ordering choices. And in the end, these are my own preferences, so let's not talk about balance. The book's title is certainly suggestive, implying that music is not just a companion in our lives, but that certain works can carry us through, that is, play an active part, a supporting role, as we've just heard, inspiring, delighting, comforting, and consoling us. And many, many composers were completely conscious of the power of music in this regard. Nicole Grimes contends that throughout his life, Johannes Brahms was preoccupied with the question of how humanity could come to terms with the harshness of reality and humankind's ultimate fate. And she suggests a German Requiem, Opus 45, marked the first occasion on which Brahms used sacred texts in a secular fashion. In so doing, what he intended was to provide comfort to the largely secularized audience for whom he wrote. Concerning the premiere of the Requiem, Brahms famously posited that, with regard to the text, I would happily omit German and simply put human, replacing the German with human, not only elevated the work from the particular to the universal, it also indicated the degree to which Brahms was concerned with humanity itself in this composition. This work was to provide comfort and solace for those who mourn, those who continue to live with their loss. It would form a consolatory meditation on the common destiny of the living and the dead. The words of the prophet Isaiah evoked in the fifth movement of the Requiem, Thee will I comfort elegantly capture what Brahms sought to achieve with this and similar works, that is, to provide a spiritual composition through the experience of which his audience would be comforted, elevated, and edified. Words of Nicole Grimes in her study, Brahms' Elegies. We have a chance to experience a full performance of the Brahms German Requiem this weekend in Wilkesbury and Scranton to be presented by the Marywood University Concert Choir and Wyoming Seminary Civic Orchestra under the direction of Rick Hoffenberg. 
Dr. Hoffenberg is Associate Professor, Director of Choral Activities, and Co-Chair of the Department of Music, Theatre and Dance at Marywood, and Music Director of the Civic Orchestra. He paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about the Brahms German Requiem and its brilliance. And we began with the basic question, why Brahms? Why now? Does he have a bucket list of pieces to perform? I do actually have a, a very long list of pieces that interest me for one reason or another. And that could be somebody tells me about a work or I just happen to discover it through happenstance and I never want to forget. And so sometimes I'll come back to that list when I'm brainstorming. But something big like Brahms Requiem is never far from my mind. I had occasion to do it over 10 years ago at Marywood in a chamber orchestra version, not done by Brahms himself, but uh, a subsequent reorchestration. And that was appropriate to the circumstances, nine instrumentalists, and the music is so wonderful. I think it was a, a very worthwhile experience. But getting to do this extraordinary masterpiece with chorus and Brahms's full original orchestration, along with the organ part, which is often omitted an optional organ part is is something so special um i think for many choral musicians the first time they do brahms requiem is if not a turning point something really especially meaningful in their development as a musician so in choosing a piece like this sometimes it's not something I'm thinking about at all. And something will either somebody will say something or I'll, I'll think of something that that draws a connection to the work. And then the more I consider it, I realize, oh, we, we simply must do this now. And I think that was the case with Brahms. I didn't, you know, a year ago, I wasn't necessarily thinking that that would be the piece. But whenever I collaborate with Civic Orchestra, which is the case here, I always talk with our concertmaster, John Michael Vida, who's very involved with the planning of the orchestra. And when we were considering different pieces, this was the one that, first of all, we knew would be rewarding, not only for the chorus, but for the orchestra. I never want them to feel like they're in a subsidiary role when they're doing a piece with chorus. And this is so rewarding for everyone, the chorus, the orchestra, and the two soloists. And there is a humanity in the Brahms Requiem that's unlike almost any other piece. Brahms titled it a German Requiem, but he told a number of people, including the director of music at the Bremen Cathedral, where it was premiered, that he would have liked to have called it a human Requiem. He didn't intend it to be a Requiem for Germany or for Germans, but rather a Requiem in the German language for all people. And I think there is a universality that allows it to impact everyone, not just in terms of the text that avoids any overt references to Christianity, but also in the way it's written musically that is so warm and engaging and at the same time has moments of such unbelievable musical tension and it's it's both comforting and gripping and uneasy when it should be. It takes you through such a range of emotions. I just thought it expresses everything that we could want to express musically. And what better time to do it than now? <laughs> 
When you talk about the human quality of this requiem, we also are aware that there are some hellfire and brimstone-type requiem masses, Verdi with the Dies Irae, that's going to raise the hackles on the back (laughs) of our head. You knowing Brahms as you do, even if you couldn't imagine what this work would have been, would you be surprised that a work of this feeling emerges from someone who has written piano concertos and symphonies as he has done? This is not a characteristic. No, well, it's interesting because his mentor and one of the first people to really recognize Brahms' genius, Robert Schumann, was the person who famously prophesied, and this was when Brahms was young and relatively unknown, let him but once grasp the magic wand and work with orchestra and chorus. And his wife, Clara Schumann, remembered that quote long after Schumann had passed away and she was sitting at the premiere of the Brahms Requiem and said it was the happiest she had been in a long time and if only Robert were alive to see his prophecy come to fruition. Brahms, I think, himself might not have foreseen this because the first germ of the Requiem started as music for a symphony. He started it in 1857, actually the year after Robert Schumann passed away, and certainly he was still impacted by the the loss of his dear friend and mentor. And he started the music that was originally intended for a symphony, but would become the second movement of the Requiem, which is very symphonic in its writing. And then... A few years passed, and in 1861, he came back to it. Uh, He had completed three movements, what became the first, second, and fourth movements, and then another few years passed. And so this was not in one short period. It was over the span of about 10 years that this work took shape. So I'm not sure that anyone, including Brahms himself, foresaw what it would ultimately become. And the the first premiere was just the first, second, and third movements, and that was a, a quasi-disaster. That was in 1867, and the timpanist at the time mistook the marking forte piano, which means forte and then immediately piano, mistook it for forte or fortissimo maybe, and just drowned out everyone else in the famous third movement pedal point fugue, which is, it's such a magnificent piece of music, but I guess at the premiere they were... Uh, only able to hear timpani. The next year on Good Friday, 1868, Brahms himself conducted and premiered six of the seven movements, and that was thought to be the final version. And then even Brahms, I think, didn't realize that he would decide to add another movement, what became the fifth movement, and that was an overt reference to the spirit of his mother who had recently passed away And that became a movement for soprano soloist and choir, the beautiful fifth movement. And then finally, the next year, in 1869, the entire piece was premiered as the seven movement piece we know today. So the the way it came about, I don't think anyone would have known what what would come of this piece. But, you know, you, you made reference to the Verdi Requiem. When you look at it in comparison to... Requiems like Verdi and Berlioz and even the Mozart Requiem, 
Not only is the text different, it's not the Roman Catholic Mass for the Dead in Latin, it's excerpts from the Lutheran Bible in German, chosen by Brahms himself, but also the character is different. This is a requiem more for the living than for the dead. And it really isn't until the last movement you have, well, I should say the fourth and the, the seventh movements. The fourth is a brief respite, the most famous movement in the piece, often performed in isolation. It's a setting of Psalm 84, and that is about the spirits of the departed. But other than that, that brief fourth movement, it's not until the seventh movement where the focus really turns to the, the spirits of the departed. And Brahms does it in a brilliant way. The seventh movement starts much like the first movement. The first and last movements are, are parallel in, in some important ways. They actually end with exactly the same music. The, the opening texts, the opening text of the first movement is Selig sind die da leid tragen, which means blessed are they who mourn. So talking about the, the living who are dealing with the passing of a loved one. And then you get to the last movement and it begin, he begins Selig sind die Toten, blessed are the dead. Similar music, a similar text, but a very different sentiment. And that shows where we come through the course of the Requiem. So very different, I think, from the fire and brimstone of, of Verdi or Berlioz. We don't often trouble our listeners with too much musical analysis, but there is a significant aspect of the Brahms Requiem, and that's the opening cell. Right, so that cell is first presented by the sopranos at the the initial choral entrance it's an ascending major third usually followed by another ascent of a half step so and it gives the sense of rising and then rising just a little bit more and so it's an interesting kind of sentiment, and you can think about what that represents, why he chose those intervals, but he uses it in a multitude of ways. Sometimes the second interval is different. There's a wonderful moment in the last movement where he breaks through that half step and it becomes a full triad because it's a major third followed by a minor third, which as the musicians in your audience will know, comprises a, a full major triad, and it totally transforms the the impression of that motive. But he he starts with that three-note motive and then gradually expands upon it. And the the way that first movement unfolds is is such a discovery. It's so natural and organic. It's it's remarkable. You mentioned the disaster with the timpani and the fugue. There is fugal writing in the course of the work. There, there is. Mo most notably, the second, third, and sixth movements have wonderful fugal passages toward the ends of the movements, and they really show Brahms' mastery. I would say he was showing off, except that it's all in the service of the music. The third movement, the one that I mentioned before, it's what we call a pedal point fugue, which means that there is a single note sustained at the bottom of the texture all the way through the fugue and very complex virtuosic writing above it in both the orchestra and 
the chorus and and yet it all works on top of this single note that not only does the timpanist play but the cellos and basses in the orchestra and even the basses in the chorus sometimes through the fugue come down to that repeated d there are also wonderful fugal passages in the second and sixth movement one of the remarkable things about the sixth movement is that it has some of the most exciting fast-paced music in the entire piece and then it sounds like it's going to end but rather than bringing it to a close Brahms launches into this full fugue on a new theme and by the time you get to the end of that sixth movement I think intentionally so you really feel like you've just been through th uh, this incredible journey and only the seventh movement with its sense of peace and tranquility could aptly follow it and bring this all to the sort of conclusion that, that Brahms intended. What about the orchestration, the instrumentation? We don't hear from the violins for a while. Isn't that interesting? So in the first movement, Brahms divides the cellos in three and the violas in two. So you have strings that are divided into many parts, but he doesn't use the violins at all in that movement. So what he wanted clearly was the darker, richer sound of the lower, the lower string instruments. I mean, there are parts where the violas play in much the same range as the violins, but they have a darker timbre. I mean, the, the viola only extends a fifth below the violin. It's not a tremendously different range. But it is a different sound, and I think it's the timbre that Brahms was after, not not just that fifth extended below the range of the violin. And so the, the violins don't come in until the second movement, and when they do, it's a remarkable color change. They come in, again, divided, and with this uh, sort of slow, almost dirge-like triple-time march. What about soloist solos? So... Brahms uses a baritone and soprano. The original conception was just a baritone, but then the soprano was added later. I think he chose the soprano to really most clearly represent the spirit of his mother. The baritone is used in two movements, the third movement and the sixth movement. And the, the baritone is used largely in conversation with the choir. The baritone will present sometimes meditatively an opening text and then the choir will repeat it or comment on it and then we'll come back to the baritone soloist. It requires a baritone with a sizable range and a good amount of heft to the voice because there are some thickly orchestrated passages. And fortunately, we have a singer with all of those qualities. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the singer Moses Andrade, who is, in addition to a singer, does does many other things. And is just a, a wonderful person, very busy in his life, doing a lot of good for a lot of people. But when he finds the time to sing, it certainly brings a lot of joy to people to hear his extraordinary instrument. It is an amazing voice. And then for the soprano, we are lucky to have my colleague at Marywood, the wonderful soprano Jennifer Kogel, who has done a lot of performing in this area, in recital, in operas, 
and the Brahms is perfect for her voice. She can produce just this silvery, beautiful, pure, gorgeous tone that I think Brahms had in mind. So it's exciting to have the singers who can really do the, these parts justice. You prepare the chorus, and the orchestra's prepared, and then you all come together. How do you negotiate that meeting so that ultimately when we come to the concert, it works? It's very hard. I mean, I have some experience with the piece before. I've sung it a few times, and I did it once before. And so I have a bit of a sense of where we'll need to, for example, take balance into consideration. And so before we got the chorus and orchestra together, there were parts where I tried to forewarn the orchestra, these are some passages where we're going to have to be considerate of what's happening in the chorus. It might be because the chorus is low, or oftentimes when Brahms doubles a choral line with instruments, you have to be very careful that the doubling doesn't cover up the choral lines. It's much easier, especially for winds and most particularly brass, it's very easy for them to project in a way, of course, that, that choral singers cannot. So we have to be careful in those circumstances, but there's no substitute for that first time that the choral and orchestral forces come together. And we were lucky enough to do that earlier this week on Sunday. And I was really excited, not only because I get to experience this great music, but also because I knew that for musicians in the orchestra and chorus who hadn't experienced the piece before, I knew it would inspire them on both sides. The singers would be inspired by hearing the instrumental forces and vice versa. There's just no substitute for hearing how it all comes together. Ten years ago, when you did it in a different version and you're doing it now, it's speaking to a different world. Well said. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to people in the audience hearing this music and just allowing it to wash over them and feel whatever emotions arise. Brahms Requiem was often performed in the wake of 9-11, again, because I think it represents every possible emotion that we could feel in music. And so it justifies whatever people might have been feeling after such a cataclysmic event. And you could view the pandemic the same way, which brought so much misery to so many people. But but people's feelings are much more varied and richer than that. And Brahms Requiem is like that. We may think of a Requiem as being a sad piece, a mournful piece, but there's so much hope in Brahms Requiem. There's a, there's a particular passage, one, one of the most stunning in the piece in which everything seems to stand still for a moment and the chorus sings with these rising lines, we hope in thee. And it's not just that moment. There is a tremendous amount of consolation and hope and warmth in in the piece. And so I think people will be able to find whatever they're feeling at this moment in time in the Brahms Requiem. There's no question it's a different world than 2012 when we performed it the first time at Marywood. And I am excited for people who know the piece to hear it again. And I'm even more excited for people who've never heard Brahms Requiem. I can't say strongly enough that this is something that every 
person, musician or not, every person needs to experience. When I first told the Marywood University Concert Choir that we were going to be doing Brahms Requiem and I gushed for a little bit about why this piece was so important, not just in the world of music, but in the world of art. I think some people may have rolled their eyes a little bit like, oh, he's, you know, he has to say this or he says this every semester, you know, he says, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think they're starting to realize that this really is something truly special. Uh, I always love the music that I am lucky enough to be able to choose to do. And I get excited about doing different music every semester. I, I fall in love with the music that I do, even more so than when I initially choose it. But I will always come back to Brahms Requiem in a way that I would say of very, very few pieces and say it's something that stands on its own at the top of any list of musical compositions. At the top of the list, the Brahms German Requiem. We had a conversation with Dr. Rick Hoffenberg, Associate Professor, Director of Choral Activities, and Co-Chair of the Department of Music, Theatre, and Dance at Marywood University in Scranton. He is Music Director of the Wyoming Seminary Civic Orchestra. And he spoke with us about the German Requiem of Johannes Brahms to be presented in two performances this weekend by the Marywood University Concert Choir and the Wyoming Seminary Civic Orchestra under the direction of Dr. Hoffenberg, Saturday, April 29th at 7.30 p.m. at St. Stephen's Episcopal Pro-Cathedral, 35 South Franklin Street in downtown Wilkes-Barre, 7.30 St. Stephen's. And then again, Sunday, April 30th at 2 in the afternoon at the Set Lavargetta Auditorium on the campus of Marywood University in Scranton. For more information on the web, marywood.edu, marywood.edu. The Marywood University Concert Choir and Wyoming Seminary Civic Orchestra under the direction of Dr. Rick Hoffenberg presenting the German Requiem of Johannes Brahms Saturday, this Saturday, April 29th at 7.30 p.m. at St. Stephen's Episcopal Pro-Cathedral, 35 South Franklin Street in downtown Wilkes-Barre and Sunday, April 30th at 2 in the afternoon at the Set Lavergetta Auditorium on the campus of Marywood University in Scranton there is no admission fee. For more information on the web, marywood.edu, marywood.edu.